ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, borei pri hagafin, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord, who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord, who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha ba'elim Adonai Michamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat e'ilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Natanlanu Et Derach HaYeshua BaMashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru Vene Yisrael Et Hashabbat, La Asot Et Hashabbat La Doratam Barit Olam, Bene Ovayan Bene Yisrael Oti Leolam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi shvat vayenefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house, and upon your gates. Amen. You with a melody You surround me with a song Of deliverance 
Shabbat Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Let me go ahead and address this right from the beginning. Yes, I don't have my beard, and but it's only temporary. I have a medical procedure on my heart that has to be done, and the doctor has insisted that we don't have to contend with my beard when he's uh, doing that surgery. So I, in compliance with the doctor's request, I have taken it down, and it will grow back. Uh, but here for a little while, you're going to see me kind of slimmed up a little bit and uh, not the jolly old self that I looked before uh, with it. This week, our Torah portion it comes from Numbers uh, chapter 8, and it is the portion that we call I always have difficulty pronouncing this particular name, Bahala Shleka. And boy, that was good. I did that well. Uh, 
which means when you mount up or when you set up. And it comes from the second verse where it says, Speak to Aaron, say to them, when you mount up the lamps, the seven lamps will give light in the front of the lampstand. And this particular Torah instruction is giving specific instruction to uh, the priest, Aaron and his sons, as to how the daily part of the temple service is to be done. And if you recall, there were three very, very famous pieces of, very important pieces of furniture inside of the sanctuary. You had the, obviously the Ark of the Covenant, which was behind the veil. You had the table of showbread as you walked in to your right, and to your left was the lampstand. Now, you only went into the Holy of Holies, um, and the high priest only did it once a year on Yom Kippur. On a weekly basis, the priests would deal with the table of showbread by changing out the showbread once a week. But the lampstand had to be dealt with daily. They had to trim the lamps, refuel them, and so that they would be light in the sanctuary. So from the priestly standpoint, uh, they were going to have a lot more activity to deal with this lampstand that is for it. Now, there's a multitude of places in Scripture which is dealing with what is the incredible meaning uh, behind this lampstand, this menorah, and its lamps, and as to how it was to be dealt. One of the, there, there's a very elaborate, uh, detailed um, material back in the book of Exodus about how this thing was built, how it had three branches and a main thing. And in Isaiah 11, it uses the menorah to try to explain the seven spirits of God to you because there are seven lamps and the pairing of certain spirits of God for certain men and ministries. Uh, There's just a tremendous amount of information there. The oil is like unto the anointing oil. It's the fuel for the lamp and the light, the, the message of the light. It was the only light that was inside the sanctuary. The message of the light is just a huge spiritual teaching and message. And so part of the reason why we have this specific instruction given here in the Torah portion about setting up the lamp in a particular way uh, is because it's at the forefront of the activities that the priesthood does in the house of the Lord on a daily basis. And it goes hand in hand with the incense being put on the golden altar um, and those activities. And then the priest, once he trimmed the lamps and once he put on the incense, he would step out onto the porch of the temple and to those that were there, he would sound the priestly blessing over the whole nation. At the moment that he would speak God's name in this blessing, anybody that was within the hearing of it would fall on their face in the temple, and they would respond to the statement made by the priest by saying, blessed be his name, uh, his glorious name, and his nation that is forever. And uh, it's a very powerful uh, spiritual element that happened every day at the start of the entire temple service. 
and very important. The whole Hanukkah story, if you recall, uh, when they came back in to rededicate uh, the new altar after the Maccabeans had captured it again, why they the, the whole Hanukkah light thing was they had the menorah, but they only had enough oil for one day. And they had to prepare more oil, fresh for it. But the oil that they did, one day's oil, trimmed the lamp, and the lamp remained lit for eight days until more oil was brought. Thus, we have Hanukkah is the celebration of a miracle happened there, and it has to do with the importance of the menorah. Let me go a step further with you. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 1, when the Messiah is talking about what he's getting ready to do with the end of time and the apocalypse and the warning to the churches, he says there is a secret symbol of the churches that he's talking to. And he says they're the ones that have that menorah lampstand. Now, if you go to a typical messianic assembly or congregation, I can tell you something you're probably going to see. You're probably going to see set up a menorah. They're not necessarily going to be lighting all the lights to it, but you're going to see the symbol of the menorah, the lampstand that used to be in the temple. And the threat that the Messiah makes to the very first church, if they don't correct certain behaviors, he's going to remove that lampstand from them. And by the way, that would be a very serious thing to happen to a messianic congregation, is that God's presence in the form of the light of the menorah that used to be in the temple itself would be removed from that assembly. Now, these are not things of concern to churches. Church people don't worry about menorahs or the importance of the menorah or about the seven spirits of God. Even, even the evangelical charismatic people, you know, or the menorah has the Holy Spirit and the seven spirits of God, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, they skip way past that. that. That's not of importance to them. Oh, that's old Jewish stuff. And evangelical churches, even though they're pro-Israel, barely will uh, present that symbol. They'll do banners. Sometimes they'll blow a shofar. But when you go to a Messianic congregation, you're going to see one of those menorahs. The emphasis and the importance that's put on it is incredible. Let me go another step further. Our Haftor portion that goes with this passage comes from the prophet Zechariah. Let me take you to Zechariah. Uh, let's see, I'm going to go all the way over here to, um, I believe we're going to be in chapter 2 is where the portion is going to begin, but I'm going to focus in on specifically, um, there it is, that's what I was looking for. It begins in chapter 2, but it's going to extend to chapter 4, and chapter 4 is really what I'm going to focus in on. Zechariah chapter 4. So all this talk about lighting up the menorah, the emphasis on all the teachings that go with the menorah, and then this is what Zechariah is given a vision of that has to do with encouraging the people to rebuild the temple after the Babylonians. 
The Babylonians destroyed the temple. Uh, the remnant of Judah returned to the land, story of Nehemiah and so forth, and they started to rebuild things, but they got discouraged. And there was a delay in the rebuilding of things for about 14 years until Zechariah and Haggai worked with a man named Zerubbabel to get the temple going again, to get it built uh, so that we could have a temple uh, when the Messiah would come and Herod would improve it and so forth. So let me read to you part of this incredible vision that Zechariah had, and it's going to focus on the menorah. Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with his bowl on the top of it, its seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. Then I answered and said to the angel who was speaking with me and saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel, that you will become a plain, and he will bring forth the top stone with the shouts of grace, grace to it? Also the word of the Lord came to him, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of the house, and his hands will finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered the second time, and he said, What? That's the question he asked, verse 12. Uh, what, what are the two olive branches which are beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered in me, saying, Do you not know what these are? And he said, No, my Lord. These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. So let's talk about this very interesting vision. In the early part, it says he saw the menorah. He saw the temple menorah, and he saw two olive trees, one on either side of it. Are you aware of the fact that today the modern symbol of Israel, the crest of Israel, is a menorah with two olive branches on either side? That's the symbol of Israel today. Where did they get that symbol from? this prophecy because the understanding is the modern state of Israel what is happening now with the return of the exiles the return of the holocaust victims and so forth that it's not by power and might that the nation of Israel will be successful it is by God's spirit 
that this will happen. That's what that symbol is supposed to be showing Israel. Now, I will be honest with you, in the state of Israel today, the modern Israel of today, while we have the symbol, I'm not sure that Zechariah's message about not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, has really permeated uh, the thinking of Israel yet. But we know it's what's going to be happening. We know that there's going to be a transition. The modern state of Israel is ultimately going to lead to the messianic kingdom. Now, that, that's quite a task. That's not going to be done by us. That's not going to be done by a powerful army in Israel. That's not because you and I are going to all join together in unity and we'll put all of our might toward the effort. This is going to be done by the Spirit of God. And that's the message that goes with it. Then when we get to this latter part, and this is where it gets particularly interesting, he says he talks about how these two olive trees are pouring oil into the lamp. They're the fuel for the lamp uh, for it. And he asks the question, what are these two olive trees that are standing either side of it? And he answers, he said, these are two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. The term, the Lord of the whole earth, is a reference to the altar. The altar is God's ownership symbol of the earth. In fact, Psalms 24, verse 1, I've said this many times. The first words ever spoken over the altar every week is, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. He's the Lord of the whole earth. And so they're standing either side of the testimony of the Lord of the whole earth. They're standing either side of the altar. Now, for those of you who know a little bit about the book of Revelation and know about eschatology, we know that when the Great Tribulation comes, that for a, an extended period of time, almost three and a half years, in fact, 1,260 days to be exact, we're going to have two witnesses. They're going to stand either side of that cold altar that had been shutting down, that had shut down, that had started the Great Trib. And they're going to be testifying. And they are connected to this, about this lampstand. They're connected to this promise that this nation, Israel, is going to, by the Spirit of God, move into the kingdom. It's not going to be by the power and might of men, not even those that agree with Israel. These things are going to be done by the Spirit of God. This is going to be done by the Lord, and they're going to testify. And by the way, like the role of Moses and Aaron, as they stood before Pharaoh prophesying the different judgments that fell upon Egypt— they are going to be standing either side of the altar prophesying all the different judgments are going to fall on the earth, including the seals and the trumpets and the plagues. They're going to announce all of those until they come to the end of the days of their testifying in which finally those come up and oppose them, they kill them. They lay dead for three and a half days and then suddenly they're resurrected up into heaven before the eyes of the world. Um, and this is the original prophecy that talks about the two anointed ones. And it's tied together in this Torah portion and in this Haftor portion uh, for us here. This is particularly for me become very timely 
the message here is a very clear message about the reestablishment of the things of God in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, the Temple, and all the way to the menorah, the lighting in the menorah. This thing has been, a, excuse the pun, a guiding light throughout the ages for us. And to this day, let me just tell you, as my fellow Messianic believers, that menorah that you have standing in your congregation as a part of your display of who you are is very significant. That's the sign that you're the people that are going to be a part of this future Israel that God's going to deal with by his spirit. You're the people that are going to be on the greater axis. You're the people that are going to see the coming of the Lord. You're the people that are going to be the first inhabitants in the kingdom back in Israel. So, for us, great application, great meaning uh, in all of this. One of my favorite places here in Zechariah, because it's a classic example of how there's all the stuff that's in the book of Revelation, we already get a foretaste of it back with the prophets of Israel. There's nothing new in the book of Revelation. And by getting the original meaning back in the prophets and then going to the book of Revelation, all of a sudden it fills it up full of meaning and great understanding with regard to it. All right. Not going to beat the lesson to death. This is our lesson for the Shabbat. Shabbat Shalom. If you would now turn in your Bibles to the book of John, to chapter 19, hold your finger at verse 31, where a Brit Hadashah portion will begin. Let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for once again the opportunity to dig into your word and your instruction. Father, as the Torah comes alive to us each and every week and ministers to us, encourages us uh, in whatever issues we might be facing throughout the week. Father, I pray that this uh, teaching would be uh, no different, Father, that you would speak to us, uh, where we, meet us where we are in the situations we're in, for your word is alive and powerful, Lord, and I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened uh, as we dig into your word once again. We bless you and we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Brit Hadashah uh, reading that I'm going to start with uh, for this week comes here from John chapter 19. This is a uh, story I talked about last week. Um, and so there's, it's kind of interesting sometimes how uh, passages sort of connect to one another from one week to the next. And so I talked about this last week, but now I want to tie it into this week's uh, Torah portion as well. John chapter 19, beginning at verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they may be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the others who were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, Yeshua, and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom 
they have pierced. This is the story after the Messiah died on the cross and that he was, um, that his side was pierced, his legs were not broken so that he could be the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in which the legs were not meant to be broken and that the piercing represented uh, several different things. One, the water and blood represented the water libation ceremony that was done in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. It also uh, was connected to, as I said last week, to the fact that his belly swelled in the course of this judgment that was upon him so that he could pay the price for the adultery of Israel, whom God is in covenant with, and so that he could pay that price of an adulterous bride so that the covenant might remain. Now, the reason why it's spoken of uh, this week in our Torah portion as well goes back to the beginning of the story as to the fact that it was the day of preparation, it was the Sabbath, and that the Pharisees went before Pilate and they said, this, these, body, these men need to, be, need to be dead and they need to be put into the ground before the Sabbath day so that we are not defiled in the keeping of the Passover. This connects back to our Torah portion this week, uh, which is entitled Bacha Alotcha. And in our Torah portion, in, specifically in Numbers chapter 9, it talks about the children of Israel keeping the Passover in the wilderness. This was in the second year after leaving Egypt. So the children of Israel, though we've gone through many weeks of study, uh, all of the things that we've done probably in the last several months of Torah portions all took place within the course of one year. From the coming to Mount Sinai, from the instruction of the giving of the Torah, to the instruction of building and constructing the tabernacle, to the actual construction of the tabernacle, the um, ordination of the high priests, uh, the implementation of sacrifices, and all the things that have happened um, have all happened happened in one year. And so we have our instruction in Numbers 9 that says that now it was the second year and they kept the Passover in the wilderness. But there was a certain men, there was a group of people that came and they said they had been defiled by a human corpse. Perhaps a loved one within the camp had passed away. And when it came time to give the, the, the sacrifice for the Passover, now with a, the tabernacle and with it operating uh, for the sake of all of the camp of Israel, these men said they had been defiled by a human corpse and that they were because they didn't want to keep the Passover in an unworthy way or in an unworthy manner. And so God or Moses went before the Lord and the Lord actually gave a specific provision saying that if somebody had been defiled or if somebody was on a journey and were unable to keep the Passover, that they could keep it one month later in the act of them being defiled or unable to keep the Passover. What it speaks to is it speaks to the importance of the Passover. It speaks to the fact that even if you're unable to keep and, and to fulfill the Passover with the sacrifice or to do it, and maybe you're defiled so you can't do it, or you're on a journey so you're unable to do it, that there is a provision in which you can keep it a month later. This is the only uh, commandment that it really seems like there is a contingency plan for uh, if you're unable to do it at a specific time, you can do it at another time. This speaks to the importance of the Passover and what it's supposed to mean to us and what it represents. It represents our redemption from and to remember and memorialize what God did for us in Egypt. But then, for those of us who are believers in Yeshua, we are to truly rep understand the meaning of it to us in our salvation from sin and the passing of death to eternal life and how even the Messiah conquered death. We should not take the Passover lightly. 
when there, and if this has ever happened, if you lose a loved one at the time in near and around Passover, you should execute this provision. You should not um, come into the feast and the celebration of Passover, which represents the new covenant that Messiah has given to us. And we should not associate death with that resurrection, with the idea that we have been given life. That is also why... In general, when it comes to the sacrifice of Yeshua, when it comes to what the Messiah did for us, we as Messianics don't tend to focus on the crucifixion, on the death, on the, 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 the pain that he's... Now, we understand the payment that he paid was we were deserving of death. But truly, the, the, the story, the good news that comes out of everything that the Messiah did in the implementation of the new covenant at the Passover and him rising from the grave the resurrection that he that he uh, did and fulfilled on the feast of first fruits and on the resurrection day that that is the greatest thing of this story that's the part that we almost choose to focus on more so than the death itself that is because death is not supposed to be associated with the feast of freedom with the feast of redemption it's not about death it's about coming alive it's about being made alive and that is what the children of Israel celebrate when it comes to the passover the this is this provision that is given for us here and this is the sort of the connection in the new testament that is to remind us of that to remind us that we serve a god of the living not a god of the dead we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos, and that we are to follow Him appropriately and accordingly. Now, in our Torah portion as well, there seems to be a great deal of, um, I, I don't know if you could call it housekeeping announcements or instructions in which to understand the organization of the camp of Israel. And this is playing off of the idea that we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. God has said in the scripture that he, anything that he has planned, he has purposed, he will do it, he will fulfill it, he will execute it. He is not just going to haphazardly decide, hey, this is when this prophet is going to come. This is when the Messiah is going to come. No, everything had a plan and a purpose in the course of history, in the course of the, the will of God, that God is a God of order. So in our instruction, in our Torah portion, it talks about the cloud of fire uh, by night and pillar of cloud by day, and that when it went up and it left, we followed. That we were to go, and when, when the pillar moved, we followed it. We went and we, we, when it moved, we moved. And in the case, what I'm reminded of is that the Messiah himself is likened unto a burning torch, that that pillar represented God, God's presence in the camp. I go back to the story about Abraham and when the covenant of the pieces and that what walked through those pieces in the forming of the covenant between Abraham and God, that there was a, a, a smoking furnace and a burning torch. Some people, when you read it too fast, you might think, oh, that's just visualizing what's there. But no, there's an and there that specifically says a smoking furnace went through the pieces and a burning torch went through the pieces. Well, what is that all about? Well, what I believe that is, is that's a representation of God the Father and God the Son. God the Father that sometimes appears in a smoking furnace, such as when He appeared on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain where it looked like a mountain that was on fire and it was like a burning, smoking furnace. But then the, the fire is the Messiah Himself. When God manifests Himself in a means by which He communicates to us, such as the, the um, 
burning bush that was a burning fire, which didn't consume the bush, but spoke directly with Moses. That fire some, often represents perhaps the Messiah himself in our presence. And so that's what the pillar of fire represented within the camp. There also was instruction regarding two silver trumpets, trumpets that were made and cast so that the, uh, if certain trumpet blasts were blown in the camp of Israel, it represented different things. That if you heard both of them blow, that all the congregation was to gather at the tent of meeting. But if you only heard one of them blow, then only the leaders of the camp were, were meant to come. This created the order and the structure within the camp. Now, when it comes to listening and hearing for what is being spoken or communicated to us, there's a passage I want to go to in the New Testament that connects specifically to this passage and this uh, instruction with regard to these silver trumpets. If you would now go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, where it talks about um, where the Apostle Paul is speaking about the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues. Now, when this has been a subject of a great amount of debate before when it's about what is the speaking in tongues? What is this when some people pray, and you've maybe seen this in charismatic churches, you've seen this maybe in certain people when they get into a, um, into a deep state of worship of the Lord, there's sometimes this language that comes out of people in the course of prayer. Even people who haven't grown up in charismatic churches have sort of naturally sort of either developed this, either in their own prayer life, in their own prayer language, and you cannot dismiss um, when you see somebody speaking in tongues that it is something that um, is personal and is, is, is special that comes out of us in the worship of God. I'm not one that's going to stand up and say, oh yeah, all that is, is ridiculous or, oh yes, that, that is supposed to be the end-all, be-all of how God communicates with us in the gift of prophecy and the gift of tongues and these things. It's like, no, the answer lies somewhere in the middle of understanding what God is trying to do for us and what the worship of Him is and what it in, entails. When we pray before God, it can be a very emotional experience for one person versus another person. And I personally know people who have, I've heard speak in tongues. I've heard them speak and I've heard them pray in that way and that there's something, there's something to it. Now, do we truly understand it? Do we truly under moves, understand the moves of the Spirit? No, no, we don't. But this was an issue back in the first century as well. Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthians and that when it comes to the speaking of tongues, if there is a message that comes in the speaking of tongues that is for the benefit of others, that what we have to do is we have to seek an interpretation we have to find and seek what, what, what is this interpretation? What, what is it that's, that's being uh, communicated to us? So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, let's begin at uh, verse 1 and let's get the context of everything that's being spoken here. The Apostle Paul says this, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. 
He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks in tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. All right, this, I don't know about you, but that paragraph is very clear to me. Some people might still be confused by it, but to me, it's, it's very clear to me. And that's mainly because we have an understanding of what prophecy is. Prophecy is someone who speaks the word of God. It is not somebody who predicts the future. It's not a righteous fortune teller that is a prophet. No, what often is, is that the Lord lays on somebody's heart to speak something that is for the edification of somebody else. That is, and what those words might be, is could be a combination of things. It could, it could be a combination of, um, he, the Lord told me to tell you this, um, good things are going to come to you if you follow and obey the Lord, if you continue to walk uprightly before Him, blessings will abound upon you, and your family will be taken care of, and the, lo- the Lord will confirm His covenant with you. What an amazing, beautiful word that would be. Now, one could say, oh, you're predicting the future. Lord's going to bless you. It's like, no. In the course of that, there was an if. It was for the edification and the exhortation of the person who receives that word. If you walk uprightly before God in these ways, you will be blessed. Great word. Great message. The word of God being spoken through somebody for somebody else. That's what prophecy is. Now, problem is that sometimes that prophecy is a word of warning. An exhortation, a word, a word to, to cause somebody to stir in their hearts to turn back to the Lord. Because what the a prophecy might say is this. Judgment will come upon you if you do not follow these words. Do not obey the Lord. If you do not walk uprightly before Him, the Lord will turn His face against you. And you will receive judgment. And you'll be cut off from among your people. And that judgment will befall you um, in the last days or at some point in time. And that sounds, again, like this speaking into the future, this prediction of the future and saying judgment is going to come. And so then afterwards, after somebody did invariably walk away from God, didn't follow and obey the commandments, judgment comes. And then somebody way after the fact, thousand years later, two thousand years later or more, reads what somebody prophesied and said, wow, that guy predicted the future. He said judgment was going to come and that's what came. No, that's not. What he, when the prophecy was spoken, it was not spoken to predict the future. It was spoken to edify the person, to stir in their heart, to say, turn away from your wicked ways, turn back to the Lord, walk uprightly before Him so you receive blessing, not that curse. It's not about predicting the future. It's about speaking the Word of God to edify people. That's what prophecy is. And that's what Apostle Paul is saying. I wish that everybody would prophesy over one another. That the Word of God would just flow through us and speak to one another and that we would speak the Word, words of encouragement, words of exhortation, exalting the Lord and edifying, showing love to one another. That's what prophecy is. That's what the Apostle Paul is asking for the people to do. However, he does not reject the fact that people also speak in tongues. And when somebody is over there in the, in the congregation, in the fellowship, or whatever, and they're speaking in tongues, and that's a communication between them and God. Between them and the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul said. That yes, they edify himself through God. That God is speaking to them and encouraging them. And it's not for everybody else when somebody is speaking in tongues. It's not for everybody else. Unless there is an interpretation. Unless somebody hears what that said and says, 
and, and, and through the Spirit of God interprets it and says, okay, that person is speaking in tongues. God is edifying them, but what is being spoken can also edify the brethren. And the God, Spirit of God has, has blessed me to interpret what is being said there so that it can edify the whole body. That's it. That's the system. That's how it works. If you see somebody speaking in tongues, it's for them. Unless somebody comes and gives an interpretation, at which point it's for the whole body. That's it. Plain and simple. Done. The Apostle Paul wishes that we would all prophesy as opposed to speaking in tongues because speaking in tongues is a personal, individual thing. You can do that in your own prayer life. You can do that personally between you and God or in a small setting of where you're praying for somebody else, something along those lines. And it's not necessarily intended for an entire congregation, an entire fellowship. If it is, you need an interpretation. Plain and simple. This is the nature of speaking in tongues and the difference between that and prophecy. I hope that that sort of sums it up. Now, again, the reason why it's set up this way, we serve a God of order, not a God of chaos. So if we continue on reading here, there's a couple of phrases here that Apostle Paul continues on at verse 6 where he says tongues must be interpreted. Verse 6, But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophecy, or by teaching? Everything, even things without life, whether flute or harp, or when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction of sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? Verse 8, listen to this. For if a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise, unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks with will be a foreigner to me. Even so, you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel." Again, he, he, he spells it out for us in, in which it's this. You could, be, you could have a flute or a guitar or an instrument that it can make all kinds of no, noises, but unless you hear that in some kind of order or structure, you don't know what's being played or you don't know why it's being played. I'm, I'm picturing a young kid who's learning violin for the first time and every member of the family just cringing every time the notes get played because they can hear it throughout the entire house and he's learning how to play, but he doesn't know and nothing real is being played. And that's what any kind of words that are spoken can be interpreted as as well. They, we can say all kinds of things. I can stand up here and I can say all kinds of things and it can sound like a clanging cymbal and it can be noises and words and, and things that are incohesive in what's being said. In fact, sometimes I mis- make a mistake and do speak incohesively and when I'm trying to either get a thought out. But generally, what it is is there's an order to what is being said so it can be interpreted, so that somebody hearing it can be edified, so that knowledge can be gained and that there can be revelation and that teaching and, and, and lessons can be learned because of the way the words are organized. Instead of just being random words thrown out there, airplane, boat, uh, house, car, child, baseball. Some, I mean, I can just randomly make noises, and it's like, what is he saying? You don't even know unless somebody came along and interpreted and said, oh, he's telling a story. This is why he said this, 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 and this. 
That's why you need an interpretation. That's an example of how words, if not ordered, could be confusing. And of course, the direct connection to our Torah portion is, of course, that one there in verse 8. When a trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Because some of those trumpet blasts were to prepare for battle were to bring the armies of Israel out because an enemy was approaching. If you didn't have those trumpets, if an enemy is coming and a trumpet comes out and it's just going, making all kinds of blaring noise and racket, and they're like, what in the world does that mean? Then, then the enemy comes and we didn't prepare for battle. Unless you have a trumpet blast that specifically hearkens you to battle, to which I know what that sound is. I know what that means. Grab the sword, grab the shield. It's time to go to battle and prepare, and to do what needs to be done. That's what prophecy does. Prophecy teaches us, and it's clear to us, what we are to do. Tongues can be confusing. Other things and other words can be confusing and can be chaotic and without order. Instead, we follow a God of order. This is why people get very uncomfortable sometimes if they don't, haven't had this instruction, if they don't understand the difference between prophecy and speaking in tongues, and that one edifies the whole congregation, one edifies an individual, unless there's an interpretation. If you don't understand that, then you can walk into a charismatic church and you can be very uncomfortable with what you see and what's going on. Or any other worship service or place where the Spirit of the Lord is moving in the, in the room. And I've, I've seen it. I've seen the Spirit of God moving in a room. And it's sometimes it's in places you don't expect, or there are certain places maybe you'd expect the Spirit of the Lord to move, and it doesn't move. Ultimately, we don't control the Spirit of God. We don't. God does what He does, and so that we don't control those things. The Spirit just moves as it moves. And it's part of the will of God that we just sort of we go with the flow. Go with the flow of the Spirit. And the Spirit is likened unto air and a mighty wind that blows. And it's likened unto water as it flows. And so in all of those things, sometimes you don't, you don't put an umbrella up in a, in, a, in a wind. Otherwise, you're going to be fighting against the wind. It's like, no, you need to make yourself aerodynamic and move with the flow. Or if you're in the ocean and the waves, are, you have to go with the flow of the, the ocean. That's how the Spirit moves sometimes to where... You need to just, there's understanding you need to have before you end up in that circumstance or in that situation. All right, now let's turn to Luke chapter 10. There's a very fascinating parallel to our Torah portion uh, that, uh, come, that, that I haven't seen really recognized uh, very often, and it has to do with the fact of that the Lord, the Messiah, sent out 70 people to go and to speak and to preach in the cities. And this idea of 70 is always very unique whenever you see it in the Scriptures. And we see it in our Torah portion as well, but you might not have... I've honestly, when I've heard Torah portions being taught, um, I don't hear this section talked about very often. In the middle of Numbers chapter 11, beginning at verse 16, it talks about how Moses gathered together 70 men, 70 elders of the people, and where it specifically says that the spirit that is on Moses will be put on these 70 men and that they would then be able to prophesy in the camp and would be able to speak the words of God and from the Spirit of God that normally only spoke through Moses would speak through these 70 elders. 
And it's fascinating the way this is set up. These 70 men came to the tabernacle, we assume. And then there's this interesting story about how two men who are called by God, and their names are actually given, uh, Eldad and Medad, of the, that were in the camp and that they were, the Spirit fell upon them as well, and that they were in the camp prophesying within the camp. And somebody came running to Moses and says, Moses, there's two men that are prophesying in here. And Moses says, look, this is the Spirit of the Lord moving. If the Lord moves in that spirit, that's what's going on. So that's what is being done here in the course of this story here in the middle of our uh, of our Torah portion. Fascinating that then there's an instance in which the Messiah himself sends out 70 into the cities, teaching two by two into the cities to prophesy before the Lord. Now the report that comes back is wonderful. In the course of this entire story, let me go and read this here in Luke chapter 10, that there is, um, that, that the word that comes back and the Lord uses these 70 to prophesy into the cities. It says this, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest truly is great. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among the wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But, but whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon it. If not, it will return to you and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick there. And say to them, the kingdom of God is come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, the very dust of your city which clings to us, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And I say to you that it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for your city. This is prophecy that is being given. Saying, the kingdom of God is, is at hand. The kingdom of God is near to you. Be peace, be upon you. If we receive peace back, then blessings will come upon you. If you, we are not received, if our word is not received, then judgment will come. This is the nature of prophecy that is being uh, prophesied upon these cities wherever they might go. And it continues on with the, with the woes and the words of warning that would be upon some of these cities. Verse 13 of Luke 10. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. He who hears, you hear me. He who rejects, you reject me, and he who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Then the seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven." 
In that hour, Yeshua rejoiced in the Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and the one whom the Son wills to reveal him. Then he turned to his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see and have not seen it, and to hear what you hear and have not heard it. What an amazing thing that was going on here in the first century, the testimony of the Messiah going into the cities by the word of prophecy and by the word of these 70 that were sent out as well. And it talks about how We as believers and followers of the Messiah have been empowered to cast out demons. That we as believers, that's one of the blessings of being a believer, is that the power of God that is in us is the power which comes from heaven. And not that we should rejoice that demons are subject to us. That we walk around high and mighty and say, no demon can stand in my presence because of how, uh, how great my testimony of the Messiah is. No, 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 no. That's not for us to boast about being believers. But what it instead is, is that we have been given an incredible blessing to have our name written in the book of life and to be called by God and that we should have the humility to love God, worship God, bless Him for the blessings and provisions that He has given, what we can then do as a result of having that testimony is simply something that is the power of God and not anything for us to boast about. That's something we should keep note of. And this is where people who've been called to be a prophet or called to speak the Word of God needs to be very careful in what kind of authority they come and they represent. Do they boast that they carry the authority of God? Do they boast that, the, that, God is, um, that God has given them the power to do all of these things and so now you must sit and you must listen to me? No, that's not the way that it works. That is not, you sense immediately that there is some other spirit besides the spirit of God in that person. Perhaps a spirit of greed, perhaps a spirit of arrogance, perhaps a spirit of a worldly spirit That is some person thinking he's achieved something because he's been blessed by the Lord. No, that's not the spirit that we are to have. The spirit we are to have is to prophesy, as I said before. What is prophecy? Speaking the Word of God. The message that the God, God has laid on your heart to say to somebody else or to a group of people for their edification so that they may be blessed, so that they may obey, so that they may do those things. Sometimes that word might include a blessing for doing good or a punishment for doing bad. It's not about predicting the future. It's about saying what the Lord wants to say to you so that you might make a choice. Do you choose to obey the Lord? Or do you choose to obey your own heart and your own fleshly desires? That's simply what prophecy is. That's simply what speaking the Word of God is. And that here in, in our passage and in our story here, it's he, the Messiah is speaking to, when he concludes with the disciples, he says this, Many prophets and kings have desired to see what you see here. Because what is being represented here is true prophecy. True prophecy that is coming straight from the Messiah, straight from God who sent him. And the people are hearing the words of what to say in these cities directly, audibly, with their own ears, out of the mouth of a man who is the embodiment of God so that the word is clear, coming from God. That is just true a prophecy as can be. 
Without the Messiah speaking directly to us, prophecy has to be something the Lord lays on our heart or says to us in a dream or a vision or a revelation. And then when we go to relay it, there's almost a question as to whether, did we really hear it correctly? Am I saying this right, Lord? Is this what you wanted me to say? Is this the prophecy that you have me to say? If it's truly what God has laid on your heart and it is from the Lord, then yes, it's prophecy. But when it came to what was happening here in the first century, audibly hearing the words out of the Messiah was the purest form of prophecy. And the Messiah said to his disciples, many have desired to see what you see and many have desired to hear what you hear, but you get to hear it. That's the blessing to those, to these first century uh, uh, followers of the Messiah to be able to see and hear and sense what is going on here prophecy-wise. Now, last passage I want to go to, uh, we've talked about it before, but it connects once again to our Torah portion, and that's to Luke chapter 4. In our Torah portion, during the time in which the 70 elders were, were called to prophesy in the camp of Israel, there was a couple of grumblings, should we say, uh, that went on. There was the what happened at Taborah, where people at the edge of the camp started grumbling against the Lord, grumbling against the bread that had been, the, the manna from heaven that had been falling for them every single day for them to gather and to eat. And they desired meat, and they wished for what they used, they used to have back in the land of Egypt, and they rejected the food that was given to them by God, the very bread of life, the manna that fell from heaven. And then after the 70 elders were appointed as well, that's when we reached the place called the Graves of Craving, where they came to the place where quail came to them, fell to the ground before them, and they ate quail. They ate so much quail that all the ones that gave in to these cravings and to this gluttony that they were uh, consumed by, this desire for meat, it wasn't just food. It was a desire for meat. And they ate so much of it so fast and were judged, and they died while they were still gnashing the meat between their teeth. And that this was a great judgment that took place in Israel and in the camp of Israel. Right after we, let, right after we kept the Passover, right after we're leaving Mount Sinai, on our way to get ready to head to the Promised Land, we, the children of Israel, we start grumbling, desiring meat and grumbling against the Lord and rejecting the bread, it wasn't about being hungry, because if you were hungry, you ate the manna and you were filled. It was lustful greed for and, and a craving for meat. And not to sacrifice your own animals of, your, uh, of the herds, because the children of Israel had herds. If you want meat, you keep them, kill and eat. And it's like, no, they didn't want that. They wanted something else. And the Lord sends us quail, and this was a great judgment that came upon them. And this was one of the times that the children of Israel tested the Lord. It's one of the ten tests in the wilderness that the children of Israel did where they tested God as to whether God would be faithful to them. And they demanded something from God when that's not what God said He was going to do. And this is a mistake that many people make. When it comes to having a testimony in the Lord, and sometimes we might think, Lord, why hasn't this happened yet? Why isn't this? Or it's like, Lord, I want this. You've given me this and this and this. All of these blessings are good, but I want this blessing instead. That's when greed takes over. Imagine people that, you know, have no financial need. They are not in financial ruin in any way, shape, or form. But then that's the person that's saying, Lord, I want to win the lottery. I want all this money. I want to gain all of this money. It's like all your needs have been met. The Lord's committed to meet your needs. He hasn't committed to meet your wants. And you put the Lord to the test. And out of greed, you're demanding something from the Lord. That is not what we should do. 
This is the exact nature of the thing that the, the enemy, Hasatan, the adversary, tempted the Messiah with in the wilderness. That's why we're in Luke chapter 4, where the Messiah went into the wilderness, filled with the Holy Spirit, after being baptized by John the Baptist. He goes in, and then there, Satan, the devil, is in the wilderness and tempting him. Now that he's a man, but he's been filled with the Spirit of God, the devil is checking and testing, does the Spirit of God lead him, or does his flesh lead him? Because he has both. The Messiah had both. He had flesh, and he had the Spirit of God. Which is going to prevail? Which is going to, to take over when it comes to the next words that come out of his mouth, or the next thing that he says, or the next action that he takes? What will take over? Is it going to be the flesh? Is it going to be the Spirit? So the devil says to him, If you're the Son of God, command the stone to be bread, because he had been, become hungry, because he went into the wilderness for 40 days. He came, became hungry, grumblings in his stomach. The devil says, Turn this rock into bread. You can do it. And the Messiah answered him and he said, As written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He immediately knew this tempting, that he was not going to be tempted by food in any way, shape, or form. And then he sets him up on a high mountain, and he says, I give you all authority, all the kingdoms of the world, and all of these things. And it's like, you, you can have all of these things, and this is, and once again, another temptation, worldly, of, of, of power and authority. But being led by the Spirit of God, Yeshua was not tempted. He was, or he was tempted, but he did not give in to the temptation. This is what we as believers all have the power to do. The temptations will come because we are flesh. But if the Spirit of God is what inhabits us, we reject the temptation and instead follow what the Lord has said. Later on, he goes in here saying, um, as, as Satan is still trying to, to uh, tempt him and cause him to uh, disobey the Lord and to, to reject God, Yeshua answers back to Satan in verse 12 where it says this. He says, It has been said, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This was the last thing that the Messiah said to the devil that stopped all of the temptations from coming. Because it's like, because in the course of this dialogue, it's not a matter of that we're testing God and his power, because we're not to do that. If it's God's will for us to be hungry, then we should be hungry. If it's God's will for us to, be, uh, to, to have less authority in one area or another, well, then that's God's will. We can't let our fleshly desires come over and take us over. Well, the children of Israel, they didn't learn this lesson very well at all. Their earthly, fleshly desires for a certain type of food that tasted a certain way got the better of them. And they rejected the bread of life. You know that bread that I was talking about earlier, that, that bread of, of the Passover that we're supposed to eat that is the very Word of God that we put into our mouth? That bread that represents life and eternal life? And we're talking about the Passover and how important the Passover was. I was saying that earlier. Imagine if you just reject it outright. Say, I don't want any of that. I don't want the bread of life. I don't want the bread of the covenant between us and God. I don't want to keep the Passover. I was unable to keep the, you know... I, I missed the Passover this year, and it's all like, oh, I could do it again in a month. Nah, I still don't want to do it. What? That is outright rejection of the bread of life. That is the rejection of God. That's blasphemy. That's the gravest sin that anyone could commit, is to reject God. 
Instead, we should have the heart to want to eat that bread, eat that bread of life, and know that it meets all of our needs and we don't need anything else. And even if we come and the provision was given to us, I missed the Passover. I couldn't make it. I was defiled. I was unclean. I couldn't eat of it. I was on a great journey. I couldn't do it. It's like, oh, wait, it's coming again next month. I can do it again next month. Then I'm there because I want to eat the bread. I am not rejecting the bread of life. I am choosing the bread of life over all the other cravings and things that I might be led by. That is the testimony that we should have as believers. To not then tempt the Lord to judge us because of our desires and our greeds. These are the lessons that we learn from the Torah. And as the uh, story of the Torah now shifts, as the rest of the book of Numbers, as they're now leaving uh, Mount Sinai, we were done with all the commandments for the tabernacle and the priesthood and the Levites, and then the stories of what the children of Israel did for the rest of the wilderness and their wanderings in the wilderness... The children of Israel made terrible grave mistakes in that wilderness. And it's for our exhortation, it's for our instruction to not repeat the mistakes of our ancestors, but to instead um, follow what the Lord has said, obey what He has said, not test the Lord, not reject what the Lord has given to us, whether it be the promised land or whether it be the bread and the, and the uh, provisions that He has given to us to meet our needs, that we should never reject all the wonderful things that the Lord has blessed us with because we have seen the result of what it is if we reject those things. Let that not be our testimony, the testimony of the generation that died off in the wilderness, but let our testimony instead be the ones of the generation that desire to seek God and His will and what He has led, why He's leading us through the wilderness and because He's desiring to bless us and give us all of these things and that we might see and that we might prophesy before the world and to all people that the kingdom of God is at hand and that Yeshua is Lord and He has given us salvation. What you have to do is you have to ask and you receive it and you receive eternal life and you are an inheritor of the blessings of the kingdom as adopted sons of the living God. What What great news that is. Good news, in fact. That is what our testimony should be and let us learn from the mistakes of old so that we can fulfill that and let that be our destiny, and let us be the fulfillment of prophecy. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for this teaching, this instruction, Father. Our Father, I pray that everyone is blessed on this Sabbath day, encouraged and strengthened, rested and refreshed, Lord, ready to uh, tackle the week as it begins again. Father, um, as we continue to read the Word each and every day, may it be the daily bread we need that feeds us spiritually in everything that we do. Father, I pray that you would uh, strengthen us, Father, that you would always lead us away from any temptation, Father. May your Spirit inhabit in us so that we might have the words to say and the Word of God to quote in the face of the enemy that might be tempting us, Father, just as the Messiah did in the wilderness. For we find ourselves, Lord, in a wilderness of the peoples, in a wilderness of words, in the, in the scattering of the nations that we're in, Father. And Father, may we have your Spirit uh, inhabited in us, Lord, to speak your word, to speak your truth, and to reject all temptations of the world. Father, may we be the fulfillment of prophecy, and may you lead us and guide us with your Spirit in all things. We love you and we thank you. In Yeshua's name, Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah, hey, hey.
May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.